You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. We're really looking forward to our second Wider Lands Renewal Retreat at the very end of October. Yes, it's going to be right here in my backyard in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a really special occasion and it really did seem to be truly transformative. And parents who attended last time were very keen to come together for another retreat. Yeah, and for those of you who didn't attend last time, this is a retreat for parents who are seeking a deeper understanding of themselves and of their gender-questioning child. And it's also for parents who need some time out for some self-reflection and who want to parent with more confidence. Yeah, so please join me, Stella, and our dear friend and colleague, Lisa Marciano, in Scottsdale, Arizona this fall. The Eventbrite link will be in the show notes, and you can also Google Wider Lens Renewal Retreat Arizona. We hope to see you there. Psychologist Dr. Maggie Goldsmith, which is a pseudonym, by the way, was working as an independent contractor at the psychological and counseling services of a small progressive liberal arts college when her 16-year-old daughter announced that she identified as transmasculine and wanted to use he-him pronouns. Unable to find appropriate help for her daughter, who was intensifying her demands for cross-sex hormone treatment as she got closer to her 18th birthday, Maggie embarked with her on a very special trip to their ancestral homeland. While there, Maggie wrote about her experiences as a clinician and as a parent of a gender-questioning adolescent. In her first Pitt Substack essay, titled, To My Daughter's Therapist, You Were Wrong, Maggie wrote about her daughter's process of shedding this transgender identity as she worked to build a more resilient and flexible sense of self. That essay got over 20,000 reads within the first three months of its publication. Her second pit essay, titled Trans and the Myth of Sloppy Parenting, explored the conditions that made her family fertile ground for gender ideology and how ultimately the parent-child bond was the solvent for her daughter's gender dysphoria. Maggie's clinical work with teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria is guided by child and adolescent development theory and a belief that a good working alliance between therapist and parent can act as a scaffolding to support the young person's mental health and emotional growth. We had such a great time talking with Maggie that we decided this is going to have to be part one of a two-part series. So today she talks about her experience with her daughter's trans identity. And then in part two, maybe a couple weeks from now, we're going to explore the psychoanalytic perspective and how Maggie frames gender identity, gender exploration within the family context, and so many other things. So this is a wonderful discussion. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Maggie Goldsmith. Stella, we have another lovely guest today. We certainly do. Maggie Goldsmith, you're very welcome to Gender Hi. A Wider Lens. Thanks for having me. So we we have a lot of interesting things to talk with you about today. Maybe we can start with um, kind of where you were working, what that was like around the time that your child started to question her gender. Okay. So I was working at a um, 
very progressive, um, very sort of small liberal arts college. Um, I was working as an independent contractor at that point. But before that, I had trained there as a, as a postdoc. And so I, had a, I have a long sort of um, perspective of how things changed at the center itself over time. And because I was an independent contractor, I think I was a little bit removed from what the staff were actually doing and thinking. So I had a little bit of, of a more objective view. Mm. So when I was there as a trainee in the aughts, there was um, this was before the sort of I don't know what you want to call it, the gender Explosion. Explosion. <laughs> and so, and there were no sort of, I mean, you had, you had butch lesbians, you had gay people, you had students coming in for all kinds of relational issues. But in the five years that I was there as a trainee, I can't tell you that I had a single person who was saying they were transgender. So I was there five years as a trainee because at the same time I had small children and I was raising them. Um, and then I took a hiatus and then I went back as an independent contractor. And when I went back, I would say it must have been around 2015. I started noticing pronouns in people's bios in people's um, signatures, like emails that I would get from the school, and I would be like, what is they them? Like, what is this? And then every so often, a student would like show up on my schedule, and it would say the student's name, and it would say the student's preferred pronouns, and every so often, I would get someone with they them pronouns. And I would go home, and I would like literally make a joke of it, and I would be like, you know, I got a they them on my schedule today. <laughs> and my like I would I, I, I never imagined in a million years that like this was a thing that was serious or, you know, I thought oh, people play around with their identity, people, whatever. Um, so, you know, and I was blissfully ignorant, I have to say, at that point in time about any of it. And so comes the comes around 2019 2020 the pandemic starts and this is when my daughter comes to me and one night we're driving home from a friend's house and and you know and she says i, I think that you know after college maybe sometime in my 20s i might want to try some some hormone therapy and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. What do you what do you mean? And she says, well, you know, it would make it easier for me to like build muscle. Like my voice might be a little deeper. It might be, you know, might speed up my metabolism a little bit. And so I'm like, can I ask you? Because I'm really geeked yeah. out into bodybuilding right now. Was she like a bodybuilder? Because no. that's actually not a weird question for people who are like bodybuilding okay, so though it's will, not healthy we will get to that, that just come we're gonna get blue? to that yeah yeah okay no. okay uh, you're, so you're you're incredibly sort of prescient in asking that okay okay um so you know and I was you know again blissfully ignorant and I was like huh that sounds really interesting maybe I'll try that 
You know, I would love to have a faster metabolism. <laughs> could I and a higher libido? Uh, could I ask? Um, was she at odds? Was was she uneasy? Was she sad in herself at that point? Or so yes, I think. You know, I, I like to think in terms of like what triggers are there triggers mm-hmm. for this, and I do think that there was a trigger. Um, <clears throat> so my kid, you know, um, gifted, gifted in art, um, gifted verbally, was um, drawing before she could talk, was walk was talking very early, very smart, very alert, but very atypical in many ways. So not, didn't really fit in with the suburban, very white sort of profile of her peers at this very competitive high school, public high school she was at, um, which is ranked usually in the top 20 or 50 schools in, in this big United States. And since you created that contrast, would you mind sharing like what is her ethnic background just so the listener can understand? So I would I would just to sort of um, protect her identity. Sure, sure. Um, I would say that our ethnic background can be identified as Southwest Asian. Okay, okay, so keep going. The Middle mm-hmm. East, the Near East, that part of the okay. world. Okay, fair enough. Um, so she. Typical. She's very smart, but she's atypical, doesn't quite fit in with the other suburban girls. Right. So no Barbie doll hair, no Barbie doll legs. Um, But, you know, like different, but cute, right? Mm. (laughs) So, So she always thought of herself as one of the elite smart kids at this school. And... At this school, when you go from freshman year to sophomore year, you can try out for this thing that's, um, it's like Model UN. And all the elite smart kids get into Model UN. And because she was part of this, like, you know, that's how she identified herself. Mm -hmm. And when she did a presentation, she was a little bit controversial in how she presented her ideas, you know, in terms of the Middle East. (laughs) And so, and so she wasn't accepted into Model UN. And I think that that was a huge narcissistic blow for her. What age was she around? So now she was 14 when she started high school. Now we're talking about going into her 15th year. That's really hard. So she's 15. She's not part of the sort of like the popular sporty kids. She's not part of the popular geeky STEM kids. And now she's been told she can't be part of the elite intellectual kids. And so now so she's at sea now an identity now crisis is she's brewing. At, she's at sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, also she and I have a very typically close, almost enmeshed relationship. You guys have talked about this, how there's a very strong, powerful connection between mother and daughter. And so I'm saying to her, 
you know, forget about it. We'll go, we'll go do this. We'll go do that. We'll, you know, don't worry about it. It'll be, it'll be okay. So then what happened is COVID happened, right? That was in junior year, halfway through junior year, COVID happened. Her therapist gets cancer. <laughs> One of her grandfather dies. The dog dies. Dad gets COVID before there was vaccines. Oh, God. And this kid is, like, confined with me and her brother doing school online at a very critical time in her development. And so here we are. She's also very artistic. She's interested in anime and manga, you know, all the typical stuff. But she has other interests, too. She has interests in learning foreign languages. She has interests in, like all kinds of things, but it all kind of collapses into this gender thing. From the conversation of, I think I'd like to do hormone therapy in my 20s. Yeah. From that conversation, did it, did it kind of hurtle? So at that point, I was, I was like, you know, whatever, you know. I'm still in the mindset at that point of like, you know, if someone isn't really this then it's not something that's going to stick, right? It's not something that's going to really play out. And I'm, I'm sort of thinking, you know, okay, whatever. Let it, let it be. Let yeah, it sit. Like suppose, yeah. You know, later on, I came to understand that as kind of a trial balloon, you know, being floated. And, you know, depending on how I responded to that, because remember, this is a very smart kid and a kid who knows me very well. Depending on how that trial balloon gets floated and sort of gets, you know, um, perceived, then she can start escalating. So that's happening. Then, you know, at that point, I had eyeballs on her on her social media. Then I read um, a social media post wherein she says. My mom on my 18th birthday, happy birthday, honey, you're an adult now. Me on my 18th birthday at Planned Parenthood getting testosterone shots. And I read that and my heart sank. Oh. And yeah, and I pretty much like I called her over and I said, um, I just saw this. Like, what is this? What's going did she, on? Did she know? Because sometimes I talk with parents about, like, sometimes your kids are dropping messages they know you're going to see, and yes. sometimes they have no idea that you're going to see it. I think later on, that's what that's what happened, is she kind of wanted me, she, she wanted to escalate. She wanted me, like, I was being too sort of, ah, whatever, go see about Lucy it. about it, you know? Yeah. By the time you're 25, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be completely done with this anyway. You know, why do I have to worry about it if you're saying you're going to do it at 25, right? I mean, by 25, your brain is fully cooked and <laughs> we'll, we'll be fine. And you've gone off to school, you've had life experiences. Right. It almost yeah. makes me think, but it's, it's not the same, but it almost makes me think of uh, Helena with her big kind of event she was telling her mother about being trans and the mother was like and so she felt she had to make it a bigger event if you follow me and I could so imagine that 
you have to realize that, you know, remember that all along I've been coming home from work saying I got another they them on my schedule. Like, I don't understand. This is like, how can people use grammar so poorly? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, this you is know, a like I have, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is a grammar crisis. <laughs> the American degree. <laughs> you know, the nuns in Catholic school are all rolling in their graves. You know, it's like, and I was I was the best sentence sentence uh, diagrammer in my entire class. So I I was a real stickler for proper proper grammar. And I'm coming home going, oh boy, another day them on my schedule. And I, when I write my notes, I have to make sure they're in they them format, or you know, or else you know people get prickly about it if they see. You just it. pretend that you're facilitating group therapy, and it makes it very easy. Yeah. They. Corresponded to my prompt about so and so. Yeah, just pretend it's a group. I'm just kidding. That's yeah, a bad yeah. joke. <laughs> let's let's continue on. <laughs> so, well, I just want to think. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. Your daughter knows you very well. Yeah, and all the while you're coming home talking about they them, and she's just kind of documenting that in her mind. Yeah, not maybe consciously, but subconsciously, she's like, "What's the one thing mom's not down with?" Uh huh. Oh, oh, I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. And this mom was down with a lot of things, you know, like when she decided that she wants to color her hair purple, I was like, let me take you to the best hairdresser in town and have that happen. You know, and she decided to give herself stick and poke tattoos. I was like, yeah, she's an artist. She did a good job. You know, like I didn't see any of these things as like you know, warning, warning signs as red flags, because I'm sitting there going, if this is who she's truly, who she truly is not, you know, then there's no way that this is going to be something that is, you know, that's going to stick. Like a real yeah. risk. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm thinking, you know, we'll just, away. yeah, we'll just keep doing what we're doing and we'll just, you know, go on. But when, when I read that, that post about, you know, going to Planned Parenthood and getting testosterone, I was like, mm, no, no, this is something different now. Now we're wading into new territory. And when I called her over and I said, so what's going on? That's when we had the big meltdown. That's when we had, you know, uh, uh, just telling me about how she's always felt uncomfortable in her body, how it's exhausting to have to speak with a low voice if her voice isn't low, it's exhausting to like, you know, she she said it's almost like being forced to write with your left hand if you're right handed. You know, like. So and I'm sitting there going like, what is this like, what do I do? And, and at that point, I'm thinking, you know, most psychologists are thinkers like, you know, like are, are well trained, have their clinical skills and know how to hear this as a rupture know how to hear this as a defense as something that the kid is doing to try to not fall apart in other ways and so i'm thinking it'll be okay because you know i'll find a therapist eventually who's going to be able to sort of talk with her and you know really sort of process what it is that's that's been happening and so you know here I am I'm I'm calling uh, colleagues 
I'm reaching out to some pretty, you know, important names in the world of gender and sexuality. Um, a good friend of mine who is a real expert, um, who was instrumental in the gender dysphoria diagnosis in the DSM-5, um, reached out to them, him, and, um, and his, his advice was basically, well, you know, um, some kids are just like that, and maybe you need to become a more authoritarian parent. When, when, when he said some kids are just like that, what do you think he meant? I think he meant that there is such a thing as true trans, you know, and I, but he also suggested you become more authoritarian about it. Like he believed your daughter was quote true trans and that you should be more strict. Well, so if I think that, I think the thing, I think the proposition is if your child is not one of these true trans kids, then the reason she's doing this is because you have not had, you have not been a, mm, how can I say, a strict enough parent. You know, you have been too permissive. You have been too, you know, liberal. You have been too encouraging. So okay. you have been too... Um, so it's really your fault. I mean, it's it's almost like I, I remember I, I I said to him, "Geez, you almost sound libertarian to me." Mm. That you know, if uh, if if it's it's my job, it's up to me. It's my problem. It's my doing. Mm. And it's almost like, well, if she wants it bad enough, yeah. then you'll know it's real. Which is interesting because this is an argument that is made. It's along similar lines as insistent, consistent, persistent, <clears throat> right? Stella? Mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about this. So it's like you can supposedly ferret out the quote, true trans people based on how desperate they are to buck your rules and go beyond, uh, you know, the regular means to get it. But if your kid was just caught up in a trend, she'll drop it really soon, which is a very huge misunderstanding of a parent-child dynamics, a personality, like so much there that is not, doesn't make sense. One thing I don't like about it, and I agree with you, Sasha, is that it's either you're, you're a bad parent or she's too trans. There's your, there's your option. Yeah. It's either or. Lose, lose. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's either or. And, and I'm sitting there going like, how is this possible? And then, you know, and then he slipped a few other things and said, well, you know, um, the, the idea of um, reparative therapy was mostly sort of conceived in thinking about gay people, but it's been sort of adapted now by the trans identity like so you know there's been a conflation of trans with lgb and i think that that was an important thing for i I think that was a very generous thing for him to give me you know um and also it was kind of generous of him to say to me you know you should become a more authoritarian parent because to me, what that said is, I'm on my own, you know, and uh, people are not going to really help you. You know, it's like you, 
have to be really careful. And so he also tried to put me into contact with um, some pretty important people in the psychoanalytic psychotherapy world who I reached out to. And, you know, I reached out to them and I said, I'm so-and-so. I have a child who is doing this. I'm not, I am not willing to consider hormones or social or medical transition without some exploratory therapy. Well, no one got back to me. And the people who did get back to me put me on um, six-month waiting lists. Well, I didn't have six months at that point. I had, you know, my, my kid was about to turn 18. And I was sort of like, mm, no, over my dead body, this is happening without some sort of thought. So <clears throat> what was, I, I guess, what was really important to me at that point was to reach out to my colleagues and to my friends. I think part of what happens for parents who have a sort of gender-questioning, trans-identifying kids is that you can become really isolated. And especially if you're, if you're someone like me who's also a clinician, there can be a bit of shame about how did this go so badly off the tracks? Like, where did I mess up? Like, I mean, you know, a, a true example of, I guess, you know, the shoemaker's children go barefoot. Because, you know, had I really been sort of watching and had I, had I been careful, maybe my kid would not have fallen into this. But then what, I'm, what I've come to realize is I have a feeling that there are many more people who are mental health practitioners who have children who are in the throes of trans identification. Very notably, there's, there's lots of parents who are working in mental health, very noticeable. From the start of the GDSN, it was a really yeah. noticeable trend. Yeah, and I'm noticing that too. And I feel like, you know, um, we, can't really be ver- we can't really be vocal about it. A, because we're protecting our children's identity. We're protecting our children from public view. And also, in a way, we're protecting ourselves and our patients. You know, because I don't think, I don't think psychologists and psychotherapists should be really out there in a political arena. So, and that's just, that's just my belief. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I don't want to dictate how anybody else thinks about this, but. And and furthermore, I mean, I get contacted by a lot of therapists with kids going through this who work, let's say in a group practice or in a hospital or in some kind of setting. And they are, they're having to, on one hand, kind of toe the affirmative model in the context of their work, which they once their kid starts to question, they begin to wonder about the affirmative model that they perhaps have been using in practice for some time. And they can't really out themselves as doubting any of this because it's become just the, the standard operating procedures for therapists and clinicians. So it's, it's a bind in so many ways. You're so right about how difficult that is for clinicians who are going through this at home. It's like you really have a secret life. Yeah. And so when I say I reached out to friends and colleagues, 
that was really important to me, especially reaching out to colleagues. I have one colleague who, you know, who I opened up opened up to about this, a colleague who was also a trainee with me at the college and then worked at the college. Um, so, you know, we, she knows me well. She knows my work. She knows my thinking. And I remember, you know, we went on a walk together and I opened up to her about all of this. And it was so important for someone to, like, hear me as a clinician and tell me she doesn't think I'm crazy and to sort of, like, value me as a clinician, sort of saying, this, how can this be? This doesn't make any sense. And even though she, in her personal life, wasn't dealing with a trans child, or I think the fact that she was able to really sort of hear what I was saying and value what I was saying was really important to me. The other thing was reaching out to my friends. Um, when I decided to, you know, maybe we need to travel, maybe we need to leave, that was another thing that was really important because, you know, I have one friend who immediately said to me, never questioned why I was saying it. She said, go, go stay with my mother for a year, for two years, three years, however long you need to do it, just go and do it. And in my mind, that was like, wow, you know, I yeah. have support. Yeah. You, and that's so important because I think traveling is something I really, really wanted to talk with you today about, Maggie. Mm -hmm. Before we get there, I just want to ask you a bit of a, a kind of devil's advocate question. Mm -hmm. As clinicians, you know, we are trained to be aware of our biases from mm -hmm. psychology 101. You know, we mm -hmm. all have biases and we have to be mindful of them. I'm just going to ask a question because I've heard a lot of parents are told this when they show skepticism about their child. How did you know that your assessment of what was going on with your daughter was coming from a, a good loving place and not like a quote transphobic place? So that's when my, clini my clinician brain sort of turns on. And that's where I'm looking at it from like a developmental perspective and from a clinical perspective. And I'm saying this, is, this, this doesn't make any sense. If we go with this, if, if I affirm this child where they are right now, what I'm doing is I am helping them crystallize in this very inflexible place, in this very brittle, binary kind of place. So I am not helping this child by helping them to crystallize this identity. My job is to be, help them become more flexible, help them... Um, you know, this is if, if this gendered self is one self state, you know, does it have to take precedence over all the other self states of this child? Why is this happening now? How is this happening? What happened in this child's development? What is it about the family and the community that this child is in that is bringing this about? So, you know, I want to know all of that. And if we're not asking those questions, we're absolutely foreclosing 
on the work that we're doing. And I think that as therapists, I mean, we can we can label ourselves gender affirming or gender um, gender exploratory or gender critical. But if you're trained well and if you're trained properly and if you know what if you know your craft then you know how to do therapy with these kids you know it you should <laughs> and why why when my daughter went to speak with the the gender therapist that she landed with why when when she and i talked why why was she insisting that you know we have to affirm and we have to this is you know this is her lived experience and and all of that and and i'm saying like what are you what what are we talking about like what are you talking about you know suicide how do you treat a suicidal person you know like what do you do you just foreclose on whatever the demand is like how how does this make any sense and so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wonder if I... <laughs> I agree. I, I think, you know, people don't quite understand that the likes of me and you and Sasha, we're, we're the conventional therapists who are just talking Absolutely. about conventional therapy that explores the psyche, is interested in conscious motivation, is building self-awareness. And it's anti-therapeutic to be Absolutely. narrowly narrowly focusing on just an affirmative model. I don't think we highlight this fact enough. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. But, you know, I, I keep thinking about, like, the parents who I really believe earnestly are trying to sort this out, and sometimes they'll say... But Sasha, what if she is? What if she is trans and I am saying no and I am dismissing it and I am pushing against it? Is that going to cause some kind of psychic wound? So I think like what I'm circling here is all three of us go into these conversations with a fundamental assumption that that's not a real thing to say this person is born trans and if if they have discovered it and I'm pushing against it, I think we're saying there are a lot of ways to understand what's going on with oneself when a defense mechanism like this comes up or when right. a fixation on changing your body comes up. There are many ways to walk around it. So I'm just really sympathetic to those parents who have that question in their mind. And so it's a constant battle of like, what if I'm destroying my kid's soul by pushing against it? So that's what I'm touching yeah, And on. that goes back to the conflating gay with trans is the same experience. And it's, it's just. Well, but also there's something that happens <clears throat> to adolescents, I think, at this point in their lives where they enter something. I mean, I don't want to be too technical, but there's something about their mind's work where they really attach 
to binaries. They really attach to black-white thinking. And part of that is also that they have an inability to be historical. And they're very, very present-day focused. And so they kind of compel the parent to be present-day focused. And so that's something that I try to get at. You know, the child will say, well, well, and even if they're thinking about the past, they're sort of conflating the past with how they feel now. So a kid will say, you know, I always hated wearing dresses. But then, you know, you'll bring out pictures of the kid, you know, very happily smiling, wearing dresses, <laughs> you know. And so how do you make sense of this? So there's very much a denial of history. But also there's sort of like a fixation in the present, a, a freezing, a crystallization where the kid can't really see themselves five years from now, can't see themselves 10 years from now. And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, my daughter wanted to become, you know, a, a trans boy, but had no idea what that would look like when she's her father's age. And, you know, she, she wanted to be losing her hair like him. <laughs> she wanted to be a cute 18-year-old trans boy. No interest in I, yeah. I would love to be a cute 18-year-old anything, but like, you know. Could you go back? How does that you, you left us on a cliffhanger. She was coming yeah. up to her 18th birthday and you were going, mm-mm, we need some proper, what you said is we basically need thought. That's all you were requesting from the situation yeah, and yeah. you weren't getting it. So what yeah, happened then? I wasn't getting it. So, but you know, also you have to like look at the context of what was happening. And I had hints that maybe there was going to be some questioning. And one thing that happened is, okay, so she buzzed her hair off. And that was like, all right, she buzzed her hair off. Um, she started wearing these hoodies. You know, it was like she fully embraced the look. Um, and then one day she took a big box and she put all of her girl clothes in it. And she took this box and put it right in the middle of my bedroom. And I left it there. Because I saw that, I heard that as here is my girlhood, hold it for me. And I just left it there. And I left it there for months. I didn't touch it. You know, to the point where my husband was like, like, how long is this going to stay? How long am I going to have to walk around this? And I was like, as long as you need to, you know, and he was like, all right. So that was one sign that, you know, I said, hmm, maybe something. Um, Another sign to me was, so at one point in June, June is a terrible month for people, for, for parents who have trans identifying kids, oh, by the yes. way, because of, because of pride and because pride has been sort of, you know, co-opted by trans. And because there's all heightened leaving school and coming out before you leave school. Yeah, proms yeah the and, transition periods. That's oh, so it's true. Biggie, it's a right. huge mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was, again, you know, there was no prom because of COVID and COVID. there was a lot of kids didn't, 
so a lot of these like normal normative things weren't yeah, happening these like climactic life. moments that are so yeah. important kids were like well I guess I'll figure out my own way to create one right exactly yeah. and yeah. so I remember that like at one point during in June she saw a post by um in when she was in middle school there was this there was this child who was medically transitioning and my daughter had become a very powerful ally to this child and i loved this about her i was very supportive i was very sort of proud of her for you know being this this kid's ally so comes june of senior year this child eventually moved on moved to a different school district or whatever and this child is now a guy <laughs> mm. you know has fully transitioned and she sees a post of him now him with his friends at graduation just looking like a regular handsome guy going off to you know some ivy league college and she sees that and she says you know what i am done i want to i want an appointment at the gender clinic you know I, you need to make this appointment for me. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. So I make an appointment. In my mind, of course, I'm going over my dead body. But I make the appointment and I send her the screenshot. And right after I send her a screenshot, she goes online and buys dresses and high-heeled shoes. Yes. Right? I know this. Way more common than people might think because parents are like what is going on what is going on this is mind melting right which it is and so yes and so but in my mind I'm like huh okay that's what we're doing huh <laughs> and so so now you know every few days she goes into the big box of clothes she digs around in it she takes some stuff out puts some stuff back you know she's playing around um, at that point, oh, I'm already God, thinking, what are you thinking, sorry, what were you thinking at this point? So at that point, I'm thinking, you know what, there's a little flexibility here. Okay. Mm. You know, and But, I think that that's what you look for, right? You look for like that little bit of flexibility. But I presume you were frightened because 18 was coming and... I was very frightened and I was making I was making the appointment at the local gender clinic much to my but I was doing it I wasn't and I think she knew that I wasn't being sincere in doing it but I did it anyway you know um she felt heard mhm mm right even though it went against every you know but again in my mind I already had the idea that we were going to travel Okay. And this is where I want to bring up the issue of a nuclear option. And to me, the idea of getting out of here and going someplace else was kind of the nuclear option. And I was playing with all kinds of permutations of how that could happen. And I was even having fantasies of like going somewhere for a vacation and then like not coming back, you know, and going somewhere where, you know, nobody cares if you turned 18, 
you know, like in much of the Middle East to the Near East, you're not an adult until your mom and dad tell you you're an adult. <laughs> you know this, Sasha. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and so yeah. and so at this point, ah, I have to say, I'm also remembering a story that my father told a long time ago when I was a young kid. You know, when you're from a Middle Eastern Near Eastern family, you have these big Sunday dinners. And very often, you know, other families will come over. And there's often like telling of tales. And in the telling of tales, there's very often like something didactic going on. Something is being imparted. So I remember, I don't know if it was even my father or some other father who was sitting at the table and all the kids were there. And I remember this dad, my dad may be telling a story of a family that came to the United States from, I don't know, Egypt. And the, um, the children went to school in the United States. The parents were working. They were, you know, they were trying to build a life. And the, the, oldest, the oldest son, <clears throat> one day, starts calling the father by his first name. And the father says nothing. Because somebody told the father, if you, if you are strict with your child, they can tell the school, and then the school can tell the authorities. And the father was like, mm-mm, I'm just going to keep quiet. So the father makes this plan that they're going to go back to Egypt. And so the family thinks they're going on a vacation. They get on the plane. They land. And as soon as they land, the father looks at the son and says, now call me George. Mm. <laughs> I now dare call you me. call me George. Now yeah. call me George. Let's see what happens. Mm. And that story stuck with me. Interesting. It's about names, right? Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> and to me, it's like, now make me call you he, him. Mm-hmm. So. so that's, I think that that was where my notion of the nuclear option came. It's like, you know, it's possible. I have, you know, like I can do this. And so I think what it did more than anything else is it enabled me to be bold that I did have this thing that I could do in my back pocket. And even if I never did it, I could do things like make an appointment at the gender clinic, knowing that it's never going to be happening. <laughs> I could do things like, uh, I don't know. So I, 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 think, I think in that sense, it, it emboldened me. That, you know, at the end of the day, if nothing else works, we can go. We can leave. And so, okay, so now I'm setting up the context of our decision to go. We are, um, now it's June. Um, we've had the thing with the big box of clothes. We've had the thing where she's been putting on dresses. Her hair's been growing. Um, and so, you know, I'm getting little glimmers that maybe she's a little more flexible than she seems to be. So then I say to her, you know, why don't we travel? You're taking a gap year. Why don't we travel? And initially, months ago, when I had said, you know, why don't we travel? She said, well, it's going to be really hard to be trans wherever you take me. 
in my mind, I'm going, that's the whole idea. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so, you know, let's, let's travel. So finally, again, at that point, it was June. I said, how about we travel? And she said, you know what? I've always wanted to go back to our ancestral homeland. We had gone prior, twice before, but never for a long time. So the flexibility that you suspected was coming into play was there. She was interested herself. Right. And I think she was looking for an exit ramp. Or she was also looking for her identity. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which brings me to think about, you know, if the trans identity is a defense, right? I mean, how do we think about defenses? You don't, you don't remove a defense until you've replaced it. Yeah. With something yeah. else. So is there something else that can replace this defense? Is there another identity that may be meaningful, that may be less <laughs> sort of damaging or um, freezing, mm-hmm. um, developmentally stunting? And also that's more actually congruent with who this kid is. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And so I said, you know what? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And um, knowing that she likes to study foreign languages, I found a school where she could study some really interesting foreign languages that she never like she was interested in, but hadn't really had an opportunity to study. And I was like, look, I found this. And we can do this. And she's like, oh, my God, let's do it. Could, could I add one thing? You've been very generous saying that you had the option and that, you know, that made it a little bit easier. I think you're, you're saying that almost towards the parents who don't have it. But um, to your credit, you did do it. And to your credit, you found this course. Yeah. Was it an upheaval in your family? Was it oh, a hard yes. d- decision? It was because, I mean, I also, at that, I, I have, she has a younger brother who was 16 at the time. Who was at, yeah, she was 18, he was 16. And the sort of like, they were very close growing up. And then, you know, puberty hit and she became interested in other things and they sort of diverged. But, you know, her, her brother always looked up to her. And the the sort of the the willingness he had to support her in her trans identity was something that he felt was so important that he right away became the cheerleader. And he became the one to say, Mom, you better start using the right pronouns. You know, you're you're such a terp, you're such a transphobe. Mm. So I felt like there was, you know, I, I felt like it was a really toxic situation for him too. Like, he shouldn't have had to do that. He shouldn't have had to sort of become deluded in order to reconnect with his sister. And the interesting thing is, even though he was the one going with the pronouns, going with, you know, everything, she was even bitchier to him. It wasn't Mm. like it wasn't like it opened her up to a level of more kindness towards him. And you, you you brought her, am I right, and went to this yeah. course. And am I right in thinking he stayed behind? So this he was stayed behind with his, your family. 
very, 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 uh, uh, very upheavalish. I don't think I could have done it if not for internet, you know, if not for the fact that I could sort of zoom with my son and I could, you know, like follow his school bus every morning as he was getting on the school bus to go to school and like, you know, text him saying welcome home when he came home from school every day. I think mm-hmm. it was also very growthful for him. And he and his mm-hmm. father really connected during the time that we were gone. So it was sort of important. I think it was a, I think it was, it was challenging and it was yeah. very difficult for me. Um, at one point, someone who was important to me said to me, you know, you're abandoning your son. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. And I was like, oh, that is so painful. Yeah. You know, you don't get it. This person was also a, a psychologist. Um, and so that was that to me was, you know, it was crushing. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, I had, you know, I did open up to my parents and they said, you know, go, you know, go, go do this. We're, we're, we're 100% behind you. We will help with your son. We'll make sure everything is fine. I had friends who said, yeah, go, you know, we'll be here for them. And my husband, who said, you know, do it. If, if, if this feels right to you, then, 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 then go do this. And I want to talk about what that time was like in this other country. There's so much to still cover, and we don't have a ton of time. So can you yeah. tell us, what was it like when your daughter, you and your daughter kind of got to the new country, and you began your time there? What happened? So it wasn't ideal, in many ways, because COVID was there too. So a, so a lot of things that, you know, could have been much more interesting and fun and like social for her were not. Mm. But there were a few really important things that happened there. First of all, our native language doesn't have gendered pronouns. Mm. Wow, that's huge. This I is think huge. It's huge, yes. So... One of the things that <clears throat> happened while we were still home was that whenever we were home and I had to refer to her in the third person to another person, like to her dad, I would switch languages. Wow. So that I didn't have to, you know, uh, transgress. That's right. That's in right. Any way. Yeah. And so that, that takes was the, the pressure thing. off. It just gives you a little distance separation from the gender focus. So that second, this is a country where, I mean, for good or for bad, um, gender roles are pretty stable, but also it's a kind of place where, I mean, I'm going to sound like I'm idealizing it a little bit and I'm not because it has lots of problems but it's a place where men and women have very sort of clear ways of interacting with each other. So, like, for example, my daughter, I don't think, had ever had a boy hold a door for her. And that happened. You know, um, same age peers refer to each other as sister and brother. Mm, mm-hmm. If a girl is being accosted or anything on the street, 
men will come out and defend like they like there's no messing around like everyone is very very respectful of their roles and some of that is great and some of that is stifling but it's exactly what she needed at that place at that point in time also i think like being immersed in a new language in a in her native language and also connecting to history. Remember how earlier I said these kids really lose a sense of historicity? Yes. And being in her native land, I think, just inevitably put her in a place where she had to consider her history. And the other thing is that she also, she saw people who looked like her more. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one of the first days she came home, from school, she said, Mom, some, you know, this, this very nice young boy pulled me over and said to me, you're very beautiful. And that was that. And, and that just walked away. So there was that piece of it. Um, what else about it? So learning the language, learning. Also, she, she was independent there because it's also very safe. And it's a city, so she got around on her own. She walked around. She, you know, she went on a hike. She went on a few hikes in the mountains with other students at the university. Um, and, you know, it was just a really, really interesting and special time. Um, she, didn't, she didn't have to spell her last name for anybody, <laughs> That yeah. was another thing. Yeah, totally. You know, so she really felt a sense of belonging. And it's funny, like one day she just, she, and then she pretty much immediately started dressing differently and started like wearing makeup. Not that any of that is important, but that she had the flexibility to do that, you know, to to sort of like see herself in a skirt and say like, huh, this isn't so bad. I actually look good. It, it kind yeah. of reminds me, funnily enough, just it brought it back when you said about the boy saying you're very beautiful. When I had my own issues and then, you know, I went through my early teens and I thought I was the ugliest kid in the world. And then when I was 16, my best friend did this thing with me and she 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 was obviously trying to help me out looking back on it. And she she was a hairdresser, well, a budding hairdresser, and she cut my hair and she dyed it. And I, I had just like, just, I was just, I can't emphasize, I did not do looks. And I walked in, I'd le- just left the hairdresser and I walked along and I knew something extraordinary had happened. I knew I just looked so different. It's hard to explain, but it was absolutely mm. transformative. And I, my mom said to me to go around and get chips for the family. So I walked around and I walked into the chipper. I don't know. I don't think you have that, you know, anyway, the cafe. And I opened the door and this bloke who was at the counter, he just looked over and he went, gorgeous. And I was like, me, me? <laughs> and it was, it was just so shocking and heart stopping. I was like, me? And I knew yeah. I kind of was. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> and it was just, it was so, and I know that's like what we're not meant to be impressed with. And I know the uh, but there was something about that moment for me that was like. But also, Stella, I feel I feel like if you hadn't been ready for that moment, it wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. And it wouldn't. And your friend, if you hadn't been ready for that moment, your friend would not have been able to style your hair. True. Yeah. 
true. You wouldn't have, so there was a developmental yeah. piece that happened. Because yeah. I was 16, it was years that. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, go yeah. back. Sorry, yours is much more interesting. Keep going. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, I don't mean, I don't know. Like, I have so much more that I, I could say about, like, the, the mother-daughter relationship during this time. The sort of, I mean, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, I, you know... Because of COVID, as I said, you know, it was it was kind of isolating um, mm. for me anyway. Um, and I was away from my son and my husband and my family, and so it wasn't it wasn't easy. But it was sort of like what I had to do, and yeah. I had to sort of like, and it wasn't ideal in that. So, for example, you know. Some people said to me, you know, she needs to separate. She needs to go to university. She needs to. And I'm sitting there going, no, I know she needs to separate. But if she goes to university, the first thing she's going to do is go to the health center there and, you know, get hormones. But I, we, I can't do that. You know, like, but you're going to take her there and she's going to end up living with you. And, you know, it's going to end up being the same. And I, I said, no, it's going to be different. Yeah. She had her own life too. She wasn't just under mama's wing the whole time. She was meeting other people. She was out and about. She was hanging out with people. She was doing her language studies. Right. And I I know your story. So would you be comfortable sharing like her perspective changed on gender partially because of being immersed in a new culture? Can you share how she started to think about American culture and its relationship with gender? So I think that so where we are now, now it's exactly almost a year since the day we, we departed. And you're back in, in the U.S.? We're back in the U.S. We were there for four months, exactly. Um, and so <clears throat> I think, so here's the interesting thing. Um, you know, I always, when I, when I work with families and with kids, I always say, You know, this thing is kind of a marathon. And what it is, is like in the beginning, you get this like big explosion and the big announcement and the big everything. But you're not going to get that on the other end. It's going to (laughs) just it's going to just die away and you're going to have escalations along the way. And how you deal with those escalations is going to sort of like make or break what happens. Yeah. And I think that a lot of a lot of families, a lot of parents are just so ready to have the kid come and say, you know, mom, that was kind of dumb. I think I'm done. But like, that's not going to happen. And if it does happen, it's not going to happen until long after. So even now, I don't know that we can actually talk about it. We can talk around it. We can talk like philosophically about things, Mm. but we can't really talk about it. But I I mean, I remember, you know, there's so much, there's so much that I sort of could say about how I knew we were done. You know, we were on the way back and we were in an airplane. We were in Dubai getting ready to fly back to the States And I remember we were on the line, we were on the sort of getting ready to board the airplane for the long, I guess, 15, 19 hour flight. And I said to her, 
I don't know where you are with all this gender stuff, but I want you to know that I'm done. I want you to know that I am not doing pronouns. And I want you to know that I expect you to tell your father and your brother that you are, this is your name, and these, that, that you are now she, her pronouns. This is what I expect. I, I'm, I said, I'm exhausted with this, and I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And she had a good cry, a good, long cry. And she said, Mom, I've been done for a long time. Wow. Oh, my gosh. She's like, I've been done with this for a really long time. And I said, but why wouldn't you tell me? Why wouldn't you say, you know, you knew how hard this was. And she said, because I wanted, I didn't want you to think that you made me do it. And I didn't want you to think that you saved my life. Oh, this is it. Yeah. And then later on, when we talked about it some more, you know, I remember her saying, I said, what was this all about? Like, what was this? And she said, I didn't want to be yours anymore. I didn't want to be yours anymore. She needed to separate. And she didn't have the tools to do it with. And so there's a lot to be said about that, right? About the idea of separation, about the idea of continuity and discontinuity, continuity with the mother, discontinuity with the mother, separateness, togetherness. You know, now a year later, you know, she invites me to do things with her. For the first time in 18 years, we went and got pedicures together. (laughs) I mean, everybody else looks at that and goes, oh, big deal. You got a pedicure. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Mm. We went and got pedicures together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the story. I think I talked mostly as a, as a mom and not so much as a a clinician. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like there's a part two brewing here where we just talk about the psychoanalytic position on these things. Cause you do have some really interesting, very poignant theories about this. And I know when we interviewed Lisa Duval, for example, it was really insightful to hear about, her experience with her kid, but then she also talked as a clinician. So I'd love to hear you talk as a clinician. Yeah, I would love to do that. I would love to do that because I really think that, you know, what I do is as a clinician is, you know, you guys know is pretty much what like parents can be doing at home. It's really not that, you know, I mean, it has its, you know, special things about it, but really, I mean, much of what we do can be translated into the parent-child relationship. And um, I I do think that, you know, it's, and I think that other clinicians would benefit from from knowing more about, you know, at this point, I I do, for a long time, I wouldn't want, I didn't want to work with kids who were, because I didn't feel like I had enough distance from it. Yeah. and but now I do I am working with kids who are gender gender questioning trans identified and their families um, and I you know it's it's a it's very interesting work I think For it's sure. very demanding and challenging work very mm-hmm. demanding and challenging 
But at the same time, I think that, you know, if we, if we just stick to our chops as clinicians, if we really just stick to what we know and what we do, you know, and I think that's, that's how we help these kids. That's right. Yeah. Well, Maggie, thank you for, I guess, part one. We look forward to uh, part two somewhere down the line. Yeah, this was great, guys. It's, it's a really great wonderful. story. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely, lovely ending, reconnecting with a little bit of distance, which maybe you both needed. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.